You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. This week, we look at the impact of the price wars in electric vehicle motors in the U.S. and China. Plus, suicide is a leading cause of maternal mortality in the U.S., but now a remarkable breakthrough, the very first pill for postpartum depression. But will it be enough? But first, we begin with politics and what the polls are telling us. And the answer is not a lot. A Reuters-Ipsos poll says about half of all Republicans say they will not vote for Donald Trump if he's convicted of a felony. But maybe we should take those polls with a grain of salt. GOP presidential candidate and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum tells ABC that voters are not paying attention to Trump's legal issues. When we're out talking to voters in Iowa and New Hampshire, they're not asking about the indictments. Uh, If they want to, they can turn on a cable news network and watch that 7 by 24. But what they are asking about is inflation. North Dakota Governor and presidential hopeful Doug Burgum. Let's dig into all of this with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jonathan Bernstein. Let's just start from the very beginning. Are people thinking about the 2024 election yet? It depends on which people you're talking about. Uh-huh. If you're talking about Republican Party actors, you know, Democrat, people who, who make a living in politics, who are you know passionate about politics, oh, absolutely, they've been thinking about it for years. If you're talking about the bulk of most voters, no. <laughs> you know, it's... They're involved in baseball pennant races, early, you know, preseason football, the actors' strike, whatever, you know, getting their kids to school on time, picking the kids up from daycare, all that kind of stuff. You know, they're not thinking about politics very much right now. It's, you know, August, a year before the election. So when they are thinking about politics, do they trust polls anymore? Remember after 2015 and 2016, everything from Brexit to the presidential election that seemed like the polls just missed so much. So have people started looking at polls and just sort of rolling their eyes and saying, "Ah, this isn't right? We wouldn't know unless we could trust the polls to find out what people think, right? (laughs) Uh, The truth is that the polls missed by a little bit. and people notice it a lot. It's a close election, and the the polls are wrong about the outcome. You know, we've had elections where the polls were accurate, but were maybe five points off, but it was a 10-point win, so nobody cares. Um, you know, people don't trust the polls, but the polls actually, overall, as a, you know, as a, they're, they're reasonably accurate. We can't get exact numbers. Polls, after all, are, are only... A snapshot of where we are. Um, so polls right now don't tell us anything about what's going to happen in a presidential race more than a year from now. They're not. We can't do that because people. If you ask people about it, they're they're going to give an answer because people tend to be able to do that. But it it's not predictive of what they're going to actually do over a year from now. It seems to be a foregone conclusion that Trump is the heir apparent to this uh, nomination process. He's way out in front in the polls. And that's kind of the point of your whole column is maybe don't take the polls about Donald Trump so seriously just yet, right? It turns out that, that nomination polling can be somewhat predictive this far out, but with huge caveats. The, the problem is, um, with anything about Trump right now, um, the reason that we can trust polls generally is because pollsters who are very good at what they do, they can construct models based on 
previous iterations, previous election cycles. There's never been a presidential candidate who's facing sets of felony charges. So it, it's just hard to model that. Um, we, you know, by all standard indications, absolutely Trump is well out in front, not just in the polls, but also by endorsements from important Republicans. Um, you know, all the, all the ways that you would tell who's winning the nomination, Trump looks like he's winning. Does that mean he's a lock to win? I, I don't think so, because I don't think we can predict how this plays out over time. Maybe trials that happen even as soon as um, the Iowa caucuses, you know, which are coming up in January. And and as you had said, there are those Republicans, those more high-level, top-tier Republicans in the party who say, yeah, if he's convicted, um, I'm, I'm not going to cast my vote for him. Or as things are going right now in the courts, I just don't think Donald Trump is good for our party. It doesn't necessarily mean they can be held to that, especially considering that we haven't even had the first debate yet. Yeah, we're going to have debates. We're going to have campaigning. Um, but but the big thing that, that matters the most is going to be events and how voters react to that and how party actors react to that. And, and a lot of it, even they don't know yet how they will actually react to some of these things. Now, so far, he's been indicted that has not, you know, people have not abandoned him. Um, and that's a good indication that it's not going to happen soon. But we still don't know because it's something that's, unprecedented so it's it's a little hard to guess how people's reactions will go as as evidence comes out as perhaps you know we go to trial there's just some uncertainty there have we seen anything like this before when it comes to trying to figure out where things are headed what the trend is going to be with polls what i mean is clearly what we're talking about is the trump candidacy and that there is something particular about his campaign trump supporters that can put his poll numbers into question whether you're talking about his legal issues or the um devotion that a lot of his supporters have for him no matter what he does i'm wondering if we've seen that before anywhere in the history of this country i don't think there's anything comparable in in uh that you have to separate out the nomination side and the general election side okay nominations are always volatile or at least they're always potentially volatile so we've seen you know candidates go from big leads to collapsing overnight. We've seen, you know, in, in uh, just the last cycle, um, Joe Biden had a big lead in the polls and then got clobbered in the first couple events. And then, you know, and, and then Bernie Sanders had a big lead. And then suddenly Biden came back and, you know, won, won very comfortably. Um, so, you know, were the polls predictive? Well, sort of they were. The original ones turned out to be, but not so, so, Changes can ha like that can happen very quickly, and because you know, yes, Donald Trump's core supporters really like him, but they're Republicans. They probably like the other candidates too, or at least potentially like them. Maybe at the moment they don't. Uh, they may not have heard yet about some of the other candidates who they may eventually come to like. Now, if you talk about general election, that's much less volatile. It then we're talking about well, maybe uh, Trump. If he's unpopular and he, he you know, it, when you're talking about general election, Trump is very unpopular. That could cost Republicans two, three, five, we don't know, points compared to a generic Republican candidate. And 
you know, but the movement there is going to be around the margins. He's not going to lose all his support overnight because Republicans are going to, at the end of the day, look at it and say, well, even those who, who are unhappy with Trump are going to say, well, but the alternative is even worse. And so they're going to wind up, most of them are going to wind up back with Trump. Of course, if they if he loses 5% versus a generic Republican, he's in huge trouble for actually winning the election. Oh, I would like to shift gears before we let you go, Jonathan, uh, about something on the Democratic side, and that is the investigation into Hunter Biden. It is moving along with some momentum, as well as the move to impeach President Biden, which dovetails with that investigation. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering about where the GOP's mindset is, if they really believe this is bound to help them in 2024. Perhaps. Do they believe that they have something there? You know, it's hard to get into, their, into anybody's mind. What I can say about it is it's good programming for Republican-aligned media, mm-hmm. and those people are very, very important within the Republican Party coalition. For individual members of the House, if you push impeachment of Joe Biden, regardless of evidence, uh, logic, even a theory that would be impeachable, you're going to get invited onto all the talk shows. And so there's, a, there's strong internal Republican reasons to push this, which have very little to do with 2024 or with actually getting rid of Biden. Yeah, the reason I'm asking is because in recent years, we've seen impeachment movements, right? The Clinton White House, the Trump White House. But both times, it helped the incumbent. I don't think it helped Trump in in 2020. You don't? Uh, I mean, after all, he lost. Trump basically remained unpopular throughout his presidency, but in before the pandemic, when the economy was very good, he was unusually unpopular for a situation with prosperity. Mm-hmm. In Bill Clinton's case, it probably helped him a little bit, but Bill Clinton was mainly helped by peace and prosperity. The other thing is you have to separate the push for impeachment with the actual scandal. In Clinton's case, the actual scandal was was a huge, big story in 1998. I think that the Joe Biden story as of right now, is not a huge scandal on its own. It's a it's a huge story because Republicans in the House are pretending it's a big story. Perhaps they'll eventually come up with evidence or something. So it's really impeachment on its own is the story, not what Biden has done. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jonathan Bernstein. And coming up, we're going to take a look at price wars between the U.S. and China over electric vehicle motors and batteries and Who has the edge now? You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Price wars continue over electric vehicle motors in China and the U.S., and usually they could be either creative or destructive. They've been dealing with a higher cost structure that subsidies and manufacturer losses can't surmount, but that's starting to change. We want to learn more now. Bloomberg Opinion columnist David Fickling also covers energy and commodities, and he's going to set us straight now. Let's first talk about the price wars over EV motors, electric vehicle motors. Who has the edge? What are you seeing now? 
Well, yeah, as you said, I think there's two types of price wars out there. The the destructive ones, which are the ones that we classically think about, I often think a good metaphor is like the airline industry. If you had, you know, if you have United and Delta going into a price war with each other, it'll be very value destructive. You're you're teaching consumers to pay less for their tickets, essentially, uh, and and neither side really benefits. On the other hand, if Southwest goes into a price war against Delta, you're in a different um, you're in a different sort of um, environment because, of course, Southwest has a fundamentally lower cost structure, um, and that and they're going to win from that. You know, if you look at the airline industry, um, the you know the the highest the airlines on the highest valuations are mostly discount carriers because they have a they've got a lower fundamental cost structure. Now, the re- the reason I think this is relevant to the auto industry. Um, is that until uh, very recently and really at this point now, uh, the, the, uh, the product with the lower cost structure is, is a gasoline or, or, or diesel-powered car. It's, it's fundamentally cheaper than uh, than a, a battery electric car. But that has been changing because the the most expensive bit, which is you know can be you know a third or more of the cost of, of the electric car, is the battery. Uh, and as uh, battery manufacturing goes through the roof as it's expanding at this very rapid rate the costs are coming down quite dramatically now we've had a bit of a we've had a bit of a bump with the commodity price inflation of the last few years but the um the overall trajectory uh if you plot it out on a graph is still going down and we're very close to the point and now i think in china passing the point uh where they're actually going to be fundamentally cheaper on price and that makes a big difference to, to to everything the batteries themselves also are a bit of a disincentive for those who don't want to spend half an hour charging their car when they're on a road trip or who are concerned about um the the weight of it changing the mm. structure of of the car and changing the the speed of the car and and its integrity mm. that sort of thing um th- is all of that baked into this um, yes, it is. And I mean, the, the, the article I was I was writing was talking about how electric cars uh, in China are now becoming cheaper than gasoline cars. And of course, how you measure that is um, is a little bit difficult because they are fundamentally different products. Um, so so how do you measure um, that, that they are competitive? And the, the point that you're raising there, I think, is, is an important one, because one thing that we've seen from quite early on, um, you, you'll know the phrase range anxiety. This is something that people, uh, you know, worry a lot about. Is the battery going to last me long enough to go on a on a long road trip? Am I going to be spending half an hour um, charging when I'm, you know, rushing to a, a family dinner or something like that? Um, and one thing that we've seen as the cost, you would measure the cost of electric car batteries by, you know, the cost per kilowatt hour. As the cost per kilowatt hour has gone down, We've we've generally actually seen the batteries getting bigger. Um, so the actual cost of your battery is not getting is not going down. The cost, you know, because you, the the kilowatt hours are going up at the same time that the cost per kilowatt hour goes down, and that's because the car makers have been trying to address range anxiety. Um, and you know, at this point, um, a typical uh, electric vehicle will 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 give you. Um, you know, it'll give you sort of 400 Ks on a good charge. Uh, so what, what's that, 250 miles? Um, uh, but of course, that's in ideal conditions. And now they've, you know, uh, now that they've addressed range anxiety in ideal conditions, well, what happens if it's cold? What happens if you've got the air conditioning running? And so so in in some ways, they've been, um, you know, you know, trying to go up a down escalator um, against this. But if you look now, uh, you know, two crucial models, I think the, you know, obviously the Tesla Model 3 um, 
uh, is is a car that's got a sort of demonstrated ability to um, you know to um, uh, uh, um, to sort of compete against that range anxiety, and it is it's competing on price with a lot of the sort of um, you know the sort of premium mid-size sedans, the sort of BMW 3 Series, Audi A4, you know Mercedes C-Class. It's now cheaper than those cars in China now. How is it, David, that China has seemed to crack the code? And how far behind is the U.S. in this competition to make these batteries more efficient, the cars more efficient? If you compare the U.S. and China in what sort of electric vehicles are being designed, they're, they're extremely different. If you if you look at the market, of course, you know, the thing we all know about the U.S. market is that, um, um, well, in both the US and China, SUVs are very dominant, but of course, trucks uh, and you know, light trucks in the US um, pickups um, are, are extremely dominant. So um, the the advantage for US car makers, um, and we've seen it with the you know the Ford F one fifty Lightning, um, and obviously like you know Tesla's attempts with this um, Cybertruck and and Rivian the lights, is to try and um, get into that sort of large um, larger vehicle market, large um, you know uh, light truck or um, or SUV market. Um, and that's the sort of that's the area where there's likely to be the earliest crossover point where um, uh, electric vehicles become cheaper than uh, than gasoline. They're clearly not there yet. Um, it's probably sort of two or three years away at this point in the U.S. Um, China, the sort of core of the market is a little bit different. There's the SUVs are still big as they are everywhere, but these sort of like mid-sized sedans, um, again, like um, you know some of these um, you know VW um, ones that we that we've been talking about, those are. Um, you know, those are to some extent the core of the market. And um, because there's the range anxiety is a little bit less because the population is that much denser, um, people are less spread out. Um, a lot of these cars have been uh, are starting to get into the market that are sort of coming in at a, at a sort of cheaper price point. And of course, the one other thing uh, is a crucial supply chain thing. Of course, chi- you know, China has um, has already built uh, a vast uh, battery supply chain. The Chinese battery makers, they've built the capacity for the batteries, but they're having trouble getting export markets sufficient for them. So all that capacity is stuck at home and that's pushing prices down. I'm wondering if these price wars and if this competition is helping to spur this growth and development that you're seeing. And it sounds like there's more room for it. Yeah, I mean, it's it, I, I think fundamentally you, you have to come back to looking at the market share um, and, you know, go back a few years. I think in 2019, the Chinese government set a target for 25 percent of the market to be um, new energy vehicles by 2025. I remember reading um, just I think three years ago, uh, quite a bullish report from Deloitte reckoning that you'd get about a third of China's electric vehicle, uh, sorry, a third of China's car market would be electric by 2029, 2030, by the end of this decade. Now, in June, these new energy vehicles were 37% of sales. Um, If you look at how they've risen, um, it has really taken the market by storm. And and if you look at the the best-selling cars in China in uh, in, in, again, in June, seven out of ten of them were battery or plug-in hybrid models. So, and that really changes the whole dynamic in in significant ways because these are no longer exotic products. These are extremely familiar products to everyone. And one thing that we've, um, you know, that a lot of car makers have found, um, we talked about range anxiety and, and and many of those issues. You know. It, it tends to be an issue for people who haven't bought an electric car yet. Um, for, for owners of electric cars, it's not; um, it doesn't really trouble them very much at all. So, um, and this this is why the the issue of the sort of 
um, you know, the price competition and the price war is so important. Like if you reduce the barrier to people buying their first um, electric car, similar to people, you know, buying their first discount airline ticket, people find they uh, they're actually quite open to it once they um, once they get a chance. David Pickling is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering energy and commodities. Now, coming up, we're going to learn more about a new postpartum depression pill and how it is becoming a vital tool in women's health care. Don't forget, we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This is Bloomberg Opinion. As many as half of women with postpartum depression go undiagnosed, And suicide is a leading cause of maternal mortality in the U.S. But now a remarkable breakthrough, the very first pill for postpartum depression. But will it be enough? Let's talk about it with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lisa Jarvis, who covers biotech healthcare and the pharmaceutical industry. Lisa, let's talk about postpartum depression, something I get the impression isn't talked about very much at all in this country. How many women experience postpartum depression? Right, Amy. Well, thanks for having me. And we know that as many as one in seven women um, experience postpartum depression. And one of the things that's worth noting is that uh, many of those women are experiencing depression even before during their pregnancy. And and, and during that period, it's going undetected and undiagnosed and untreated. And that can carry over into the pregnancy itself. And so, you know, we know that the postpartum period is just one of enormous change. Anyone who's had a child knows that uh, all of your relationships change in an instant with your partner, your parents, your peers, even your own body. Um, the social pressure to have a perfect connection with your baby is great. Um, and, and meanwhile, you're often very isolated because you're taking care of a newborn and on top of that, you're sleep deprived. So a lot of people struggle during that period and they, you're right, it's just not talked about enough. Now, a lot of people would assume that, oh, it's just hormones, my body is readjusting from pregnancy to, to being a new mom, or um, like you said, I am just not getting enough sleep. Is, does that tend to mask what people might think is just, oh, I need a nap versus, ooh, I might need to talk to someone? Well, first, I think it's important to recognize there's a spectrum, you know, there's kind of the baby blues, and then there's something that gets more serious. And then, you know, of course, there have been cases that we've all read about that are really, you know, horrifying and and terrible for families where women have an extreme version of this. But I think it's when, you know, you're kind of noticing that you're struggling to feel happy in this period that, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect, but generally people are, you know, who aren't depressed are like have the surge of hormones that makes them that fuels them to get through the sleepless yeah. period. And, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, and so the, the, I think the most important thing is if you're having any struggles to talk to your provider. Um, one thing, again, that anyone who's had a child knows is that the instant the baby arrives, all of the attention shifts from the mother's health, um, the pregnant mother's health to the, the newborn, right? And, and rightfully so, but at the same time, that leaves a lot of um, women who go without care during that during that period. And, and we know your first follow-up visit isn't until six weeks after having your child. And so that's a long time and a lot happens in six weeks as a pregnant, as a, in your post-pregnant period. That's an eternity for a new mom. So is that why they've never had drugs before to help new moms out when they're going through this? I wish that were the reason, but unfortunately, I think a lot of the reason has to do with the fact that this problem wasn't getting the attention it deserved, Mm. in part because, um, you know, for a long time, 
uh, drugs were really primarily studied in men. Um, and the way that this drug works um, is by mimicking a hormone um, that, you know, all of us have, but is in effect um, after pregnancy. And I think it just was a mechanism that went undetected. But, um, you know, basically the mice that are used in research and even when the SSRIs, the, the kind of anti common antidepressants that a lot of people take were studied, almost all of those um, were studied in either male mice or, um, you know, in, in men in the clinic. Oh. So I think it just kind of left women underserved and the problem under-recognized. So now that there is this breakthrough, this very first pill for postpartum depression, would this then change how women might be treated, diagnosed, monitored for postpartum depression? That's my hope. Um, you know, we've had options in the past. Um, the same company, Sage Therapeutics, that developed this drug has another drug that they got approved in 2019, but it's challenging. Um, you have to go into the hospital and have this almost 72-hour infusion. Um, it, so that's very tough for a new mom. You know, even when you're in an extreme situation where you're feeling depressed, to leave your family for three days in order to get treatment. Um, you know, it does act quickly, but it, it, it just really was a barrier. And in addition to its cost, was a barrier to people using it. SSRIs have been an option, but they can take months. So I do think, yes, having something that in two weeks could make a lot of people feel better and take it home would really change things. The other thing that could change things is that ACOG, which is the um, big society for obstetricians and gynecologists, um, recently in June changed their recommendations for screening women for uh, for depression. And so they now recommend during the period where you're considering having a child several times while you're pregnant, and then several times in the every single postpartum visit that your provider screen you for um, depression. So which could really help. I think in total, it brings more recognition to the problem, which I hope means more women getting help. Let's get into the pill. Uh, well, how does it work? What's it called? Yeah, it's called Zeralinone and it's uh, it mimics a natural hormone. So it's actually a new class of um, antidepressants or, you know, a new class of um, psychiatric drugs mm -hmm. than what we have in the past. Um, and you you take it um, for two weeks and which is different, right? I think most people who take an SSRI um, would take that for, for months or perhaps for life, you know, um, and it works pretty fast um, to help you, you know, potentially modulate the hormones that, that um, could be uh, affecting your mood um, post-pregnancy. And so, um, you know, the idea is that after that two weeks, hopefully you're feeling better and you go back to your normal life. That might not be the case for all people. Hopefully you're, you know, also getting some talk therapy. And then eventually, if it really is, you know, a severe case, it might be that you then later go on to SSRIs, but you have this immediate intervention that can help you during that really challenging, um, you know, early, early period after having a child. I'm also curious about if it would somehow impact breastfeeding, appetite, weight gain, weight loss. Is there any downside or other side effects people should know about? Yeah, they should. I mean, you know, I think one of the, you know, it's a it's a double-edged sword because some people don't want to take any medication when they're breastfeeding. And that's one of the deterrents actually to people getting treated is that if they take an SSRI, even though we know that it's reasonably safe to do so while breastfeeding, they don't want to do that for months. In this case, I think it hasn't been studied in breast milk. Um, we don't have enough information to say like you could breastfeed while you're taking the drug. We do know that one could for two weeks, so-called pump and dump, you know, you could continue to breastfeed, you know, uh, 
dump the milk and then go back to breastfeeding your child after, which I think is a better option for a lot of women. It's work, but you know, at the same time, it lets you kind of have both things. You're at home, you're with your infant. Um, and then one of the side effects is that it can just, you know, cause drowsiness. And so the, the FDA did put a black, so-called black box warning on the, um, on the pills um, that they would not like you to drive for 12 hours after taking the pills, which, you know, that is a limitation and, and that's tough. I do recall during my early days and, and months after pregnancy that, you know, I was home a lot. So that may not be a limitation for everyone, but that, that, that's a barrier. So now we have talked a lot about how this is not being talked about, right? I'm wondering, though, if part of the issue is what is expected of the mom or what is what she is expecting of herself. Um, you're not expected to be sad or depressed or or have you know, questionable thoughts. And you may not say anything if you're actually going through this as a new mom. Is that also part of this? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons it goes undetected is that, you know, it's hard to talk about. We all have you know, social media and new moms on social media showing us what the perfect, oh, yeah. you know, social notion media. Of, yeah, notion of motherhood is, um, and that you're supposed to be just so bonded to your, your, your new infant. Um, that's not everyone's experience. And I think that can be really hard to, to say that that's not what's happening for you. And that makes it difficult. And so, um, I think this hopefully helps people recognize it's, it's really common. There's help. You should get help. Um, because we also know that it can affect your your baby if you're not bonding with your baby. I mean, not to put make anyone feel guilty about something sure, they can't yeah. control, but I think you know it just it's a good reminder that like helping yourself helps your whole family. And you mentioned it in your column, but I'd like you to say it out loud. This could also help elevate the conversation about postpartum depression. Yeah, I think it just really could help lift some of the stigma women feel. You know, I mean, we want people to get treated. We want people. The other thing is this is the start of your new family. A lot of people experience this during their first child, you know, their, their first pregnancy. It's the start of your new family. We want you to start out your new family on the best possible foot. So get the help you need. Lisa Jarvis is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering biotech, healthcare, and the pharmaceutical industry. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. By now, you've probably heard that Zoom is asking its employees to return to the office and perhaps you reveled in the irony with a declaration of remote work is dead. But hold on. This is not necessarily the end of an era. In fact, if you look a little deeper, it may just be the beginning. Bloomberg Opinion Editor Sarah Green Carmichael joins us now. Sarah, set us straight. Zoom bringing folks back to the office, but this isn't necessarily the ironic headline we all thought it was. No, I can see why it's a headline that raced around the world, but the reality is that Zoom is only asking employees within 50 miles of the office to come in twice a week. That is much, much less than many other companies uh, return to office policies. So it's hardly the end of an era here. Now, you talked about in your column, uh, a Harvard professor conducted a field experiment suggesting that having people in the office two days every week may be the sweet spot. Explain that to me. 
Yeah, sure. This was a fascinating field experiment by Harvard Business School professor Raj Chowdhury. Um, and it's the gold standard in research. It was a randomized controlled experiment with real workers. And what they found is that when people came in just one or two days a week, they thought that was the sweet spot for both productivity and collaboration. People who came in more than that didn't necessarily show any more collaboration or productivity. And people who never came in experienced more loneliness and isolation. Um, so it seems that actually one or two days a week is just fine. Would the move to bring employees into the office more frequently than just two days a week, is that driven by employers? I mean, most would prefer their staff to be in-house more often than two days a week. Are they the ones who are really behind this? Yeah, it's really the employers, the managers, the senior executives who are pushing for more than that. Um, but we've seen that over the past year, despite a lot of headlines about this company or that company changing their remote work policy, um, that actually levels of days worked at home have basically been flat over the past 12 months. Uh, and executives I've talked to about this say that while they have sort of asked people to come in and they've sort of said, hey, we're going to keep track, we're going to take attendance, that they actually feel like they can't force people to come in. And as of yet, there's not really disciplinary action for employees who are coming in less than, than, than executives would like. So there's not a whole lot executives this far have been willing to do in a, still a very tight labor market. Remember before the pandemic, there was this big move afoot to create a three-day weekend. There was a really big move to have more flexible hours. Now, this was in 2018 and 2019. It seems almost like that kind of went poof when everybody was relegated to their own homes to do their work. And now I haven't heard a great resurgence of that. Where is that movement? What's going to happen to our work week? I'm really glad you asked about that because the place the movement is the alive and well is actually in Europe. Several European countries have conducted experiments with the four day week. Almost all of the companies that have undertaken these experiments said that they were so positive, they're just going to keep going. Um, now, there is some selection bias there. Obviously, companies only opted in if they were willing to do the experiment, thought it might work for them. Um, but it's been enormously popular. Maybe the difference is that in Europe, you know, among other differences with American and European work-life balance, but in Europe, people have returned to office in higher numbers. And that could be because they have maybe smaller apartments, they have potentially shorter commutes. Mm -hmm. um, but whatever the reason, you know, that's where we really see both return to office and more four-day work week experimentation happening. So could it gain traction in the U.S., you think? Um, I doubt it. I, I would like to see it. And uh -huh. I think that there's going to be some tech companies and maybe smaller companies that want to be able to hire top talent and cannot pay a premium that will use it. Um, and I've definitely known people who've worked out their own flexible arrangements, you know, through HR sure. always. Sure. But I think in terms of mass adoption of a four day week in the United States, it's just really hard to see that in a sort of work obsessed society like ours. Bloomberg Opinion Editor, Sarah Green Carmichael. And that does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We are produced by Eric Mollo, and you can find all of these columns on the Bloomberg Terminal, and we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Now stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are just ahead. I'm Amy Morris, and this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.